3: If you want to go where the action is, biologically speaking, you go to the equatorial regions, the tropics. Half of all animal species are there, as well as 80% of all plant species. Why? Well, heat is good.
0: There's more energy when it's hot. Everything can grow faster. But heat speeds up things in general. Molecules have more energy, they move more, they bang into each other. And some of the most impressive phenomena in our universe happen at high temperatures. Supernovae black holes swallowing gas and stars.
3: Although most of us live life in cozy comfort within the Goldilocks zone.
4: A bit of a chill in here. Let's see. Thermostat says 71. Oh, my. I'll just crank the
3: furnace up a tad. And that zone is narrower for some than for others. To where I
4: like it. 72.5 degrees. No, not 73. Down a half degree. Down. But
0: consider this. Most of the universe is not basking in the comfortable warmth of central heating. The universe is really cold. And deep space? Well, daytime temperatures of minus 453 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 269 degrees Celsius. But here's a bonus. You don't need an extra sweater in the evening because nighttime temperatures are the same.
3: Even planets can be cold, and they usually are. Half of those in our solar system are perpetually way below freezing They make a meat locker seem balmy. Cold is common in the cosmos, although we don't experience it very much in our daily lives. Even scientists didn't experience it much in their daily lives because most science used to be conducted at room temperature. But now, researchers are seriously interested in chilling out in their labs. It turns out that at the limits of cold, matter behaves in really strange ways. So, while heat may be where the action is in biology... Cold has a lot to tell us about how the universe works, and scientists can hear what it's saying if they're willing to put on parkas.
4: Okay, I'm in. I'll turn the thermostat down to 69. No, 68 degrees. There. I'm ready. Oh, my. I think I've caught a chill.
3: Where's my sweater? Feel my forehead. Is that a fever? Okay, cold takes some getting used to, but the scientific action heats up when scientists bundle up. I'm Seth Shostak.
0: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, where we step back for a wide-angle look at science and where it's headed, and in this case, where it goes when the mercury falls, and just how far we can make that mercury drop. Turns out, some like it cold. ¶¶
3: It's a bit unexpected, but to study some of the hottest, fastest-moving particles in the universe, physicists put on long johns, parkas, fleece hats, and cold-weather boots to trek to a location where the speediest things might be falling snowflakes and calving icebergs. The Antarctic ice sheet is the largest
0: mass of ice on Earth, 14 million square kilometers of frozen water. The ice at the pole is estimated to be 9,000 feet, or 2,700 meters, thick and that would keep a highball bartender in business for a long
3: time. Well, it's kept scientists in business. Since 2005, a group of physicists have been trying to catch neutrinos with a big experiment at the South Pole. But these elusive subatomic particles have had scientists on the run for 80 years since neutrinos were first discovered. Well, they were predicted by theory. Snagging neutrinos is a coup for science because of what they might tell us about the universe. But they're tricky devils to catch.
0: Because while neutrinos are everywhere, they move fast, almost as fast as light.
3: And like celebrities of the subatomic world, they get free entry anywhere they go. They pass through matter, even a sheet of lead, without the slightest hindrance. Billions are sailing through your body every second. Heck, they pass through the entire Earth as if it were no more than lemon meringue. But with the right detector, you can catch them.
5: Neutrinos are like light, but they go through walls and they go through the Earth. So occasionally, they will, however, stop in your detector and make a small nuclear reaction that produces particles that emit blue light. And so the key is that you have to have a medium that's very transparent to light. And uh, that's what we found at the South Pole.
0: Francis Halzen is a physicist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and principal investigator of the IceCube South Pole Neutrino Observatory. And after years of little success, did we mention that you need patients as well as parkas for this kind of work? His team has finally caught some neutrinos, 28 of them
3: in total and they did so by turning a block of Antarctic ice into one giant neutrino net.
5: It has nothing to do with Antarctica as such. What you are looking for is a medium given to you by nature that you can transform in a particle detector. What this requires is a medium that's very dark and very transparent to light. And so it turns out that natural Antarctic ice a mile deep under the surface is about as clear a medium as you can find on Earth. I mean, it has incredible optical qualities. In fact, I don't think it's possible to even produce in a lab, an artificial medium that has the same transparency as this ice.
0: Now, interesting, because you said you need a medium that is dark, and yet the surface of the Antarctic ice sheet, of course, is, is white and quite bright.
5: Well, if you go about 100 meter deep, you're in the dark. No light penetrates. There is about uh, a layer of 80 meters of snow on top of the ice at the South Pole. You don't have to go very deep to find pitch dark.
0: And the cold of Antarctica, you need in so much as it preserves this ice for you. There's nothing about the cold itself that helps you in detecting neutrinos.
5: No, it's about the optics. But the cold turned out to be extremely useful. Of course, we put sensors in the ice. We freeze them in the ice. And these sensors contain uh, electronics. And it has turned out, it's again something we learned by doing it, that uh, electronics loves cold, and so once we put a sensor in the ice, nothing happens to it.
0: It's able to remain uh, it's, stable. It's
5: frozen, and uh, <laughs> that's exactly what you want.
0: So you have neutrinos. These are elementary particles that are passing through the universe. In fact, they're passing through us all the time, right?
5: They certainly do. <laughs> but we, and we don't you feel don't it. have to worry about
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We don't feel it. We don't have to worry about them. But you are concerned with them because they can tell us a lot about the universe. So they're passing through this Antarctic ice, which is acting as as a sensor, as a gigantic sensor. And when they come in contact with something, they give off a blue light. Is that right? What are they coming in contact with?
5: Yes. So most of the time, just as they fly through you, And what I mean, they literally go through. They don't touch any part of your body. The same with our detector. Most of the time, they fly through the detector. It's only when a a neutrino hits a nucleus in the ice, a nucleus of an atom, head on, that uh, it will make a nuclear reaction. And this nuclear reaction produces particles. And uh, these particles emit blue light.
0: And so the neutrino might hit, say, a water molecule or the atom of um, hydrogen or something like that?
5: Yes, or oxygen. Of oxygen. Or or hydrogen, mostly hydrogen. And uh, so only when it hits the nucleus head-on, which happens about a millionth of the time, so a million neutrinos just fly through the detector, for the one that stops and that we can actually detect—
0: Can you say more about what kind of nuclear reaction this is because, of course, we associate nuclear reactions with nuclear chain reactions that tend to be quite
5: explosive. Well, it's a nuclear reaction, except it's not a chain reaction. So what it means is when the neutrino interacts with the nucleus, it produces other particles like electrons and muons and uh, all the particles we know and love. And these are charged particles. Those are the ones we detect. And when they travel through ice, they emit this blue light that I mentioned before.
0: Now, when we talk about the universe and the cosmos, usually the numbers that we use are astronomical. We talk about the billions and the trillions of whatever might be that we're describing. And yet your detector recently caught 28 neutrinos, 28 of them, and that was considered quite a haul.
5: Yes. In fact, the biggest surprise about it is that uh, the number is about exactly what we expected.
0: Now, why is 28 considered a big number in the world of neutrino detection?
5: (laughs) Well, remember, it's really 28 million or so. (laughs) Only 28 were trapped. For a million going through the detector, you only stop about one.
0: Okay, so you have 28 now, neutrinos, and these just little over two dozen neutrinos are, might tell you something about the universe. Now, what, what can these particles tell you about the universe?
5: Well, what we are trying to do is make a, a map of the universe. You can think of IceCube as a, a big eye that looks at the sky, and instead of seeing beams of light, it sees uh, beams of neutrinos. And so what does it mean to have 28 neutrinos? It means that we have a map that has 28 pixels. And so of course that's not a very good picture of the universe. And so it's very difficult to read it. The only thing we know is that some of them don't come from our galaxy. So the real answer is that we don't know and what we have to do is add pixels to to the picture of the universe, and that's what we are already doing, of course.
0: So, so neutrinos have been passing through the universe and they pass through us. Where do they come from? Where do they originate?
5: Well, uh, the most common neutrinos that pass through you and me right now are emitted by the sun. So they are neutrinos produced by a nuclear reactor, the nuclear reactor that powers the sun. What we are looking for, however, are neutrinos that have a billion times the energy. And they are produced in the most violent processes that happen in our universe. And I can make you a long list of possibilities, all associated with some form of black hole or neutron star. And so when we have sufficient number of events, we'll be able to answer the question and tells you where the neutrinos we have seen really come from.
0: Okay, but what we do know about them is that they're created by high energy processes (laughs) in the universe.
5: Yes. They have have a billion times the energy of the neutrinos we detect from the sun.
0: Okay, so these guys originate from where the action is in the universe. It might be a black hole, a gamma ray burst. We don't know yet, but we know that because they're originating from these processes, they might be able to tell us something about those events?
5: You know, whenever we have made a map of the universe in a different way... Of course, we started astronomy with visible light by definition, but then we detected infrared light, x-rays, radio waves. And whenever you make a picture of the sky in, in a new color of light, you see things that are new. And, of course, the idea about neutrinos is that the same will happen. In fact... Neutrinos are just like light, but as I said, they just go through walls. They go through the earth. So the hope is that you can look deeper in these violent processes that we see in other forms of of astronomy. So you could look deeper into a black hole. You could could study a black hole in regions where no light ever escapes.
0: Francis Halzen, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's
5: a pleasure. Francis Halzen is a
3: physicist at the University of Wisconsin Madison and principal investigator of the Ice Cube South Pole Neutrino Observatory.
0: Ice Cube is located at the South Pole, and it's a pretty cold place. But recently, scientists have discovered a site that is even colder, and this makes it the chilliest place
3: on Earth. And that dubious distinction goes to a place hundreds of miles away from the pole where an orbiting satellite found a spot where the mercury drops lower than anywhere else on Earth. Climate scientist Ted Scambos took the reading. Okay, Ted, drumroll. The temperature at the coldest place on Earth is?
2: Minus 136 Fahrenheit.
3: My goodness, and where is that?
2: It's near a high dome in East Antarctica. It's uh, a place called Dome Argus. It's the middle of nowhere, and it's a damn cold place.
3: Minus 136 uh, Fahrenheit. What, what is that in centigrade for people who think in centigrade?
2: It's about minus 93 degrees centigrade.
3: All right. So th- that's, that's darn cold. Can, can you give me any idea of how I might get my head around uh, minus 135?
2: Yeah. If anybody's ever dealt with dry ice, this is a good 10 or 15 degrees colder than the surface of dry ice. Another way of thinking about it is that this is almost as cold below freezing as boiling water is above freezing.
3: Now, you weren't there with a thermometer. Nobody was there with a thermometer. You measured this temperature from space. How do you do that?
2: Everywhere on Earth emits a certain amount of thermal energy, and that allows us to get a good idea of what the temperature of the actual surface of the snow is. I ought to point out that um, this isn't going to go in the Guinness Book of World Records, or at least the World Meteorological Organization recognizes air temperatures that are measured about two meters above the surface. And there can be a difference of a couple of degrees because the cold air hugs the ground so closely that there can actually be a little bit of warming even at a height of six and a half feet above the surface. So it's important to note that there is a difference in how we're measuring it from the way, say, your local weather station measures air temperature.
3: Is minus 135 about as cold as it ever gets anywhere on planet Earth?
2: I think that's right. And in fact, one of the surprises and one of the lines of scientific inquiry that's going to come out of this is that we found a whole string of places that get very close to the same temperature, and they've done that several times in the past 11 years. We're pretty sure that it's not some sort of thermal limit in the measurement of the data. It's something about the surface that limits the temperature to right around the same range. And uh, there's no place else that gets colder. We looked at Greenland. Mountaintops don't have the same kind of trapping ability for the cold air so the air doesn't stay there long enough for it to reach these sorts of temperatures. And we're pretty confident we know where it is. We're pretty confident we know the range of lowest temperatures possible. And figuring out why exactly there's such a uniform floor to the temperature of the coldest places on Earth is a a question we're working on.
3: Yeah, it sounds quite interesting. Why well, can get this cold, but not really colder. If you were down on the ground there, what would you see? I mean, why is this the the coldest place? Some people might think, oh, well, the South Pole, but actually uh, this is a different kind of place than the South Pole.
2: It's a little bit different. The South Pole gets close. I think the record there is around 121 Fahrenheit below zero. And then there was a Russian base. There is a Russian base that has the official air temperature record of about 129 degrees Fahrenheit, below zero. They're very similar places. It's a big, flat plateau. The difference is that we went further up towards the ridge crest of this plateau, and then we found that topographic lows, little hollows, you could barely tell if you were out there that this was a low spot, But uh, it's a couple of meters lower, like a little basin. It traps the air that slides off of the top of the ridge, holds it there in the right kind of wind condition, and then that cold air and the cold surface sort of work together. Uh, They continue to radiate heat away into space, and they get down to this record low temperature.
3: Well, Ted Scambos, thank you very much for filling us in on this chilly new measurement. And uh, gosh darn, it just makes me shiver to think about it. (laughs)
2: Yes, me too. I I, I hope I never am out there in the winter. I think uh, summertime and letting automatic instruments do the measuring will be just fine.
3: Ted Scambos, thank you for talking with us.
2: Thank you.
0: Ted Scambos dresses warmly as a glaciologist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center
3: at the University of Colorado. Negative 135 degrees is cold, but it's balmy compared to our next stop, Temperatures on Mars can and do dip to minus 225 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 153 centigrade at the poles. How to prepare for that trip?
0: One scientist does so by donning a spacesuit and camping out in the closest thing we have to Mars on Earth, the Canadian
3: Arctic. Some like it cold on Big Picture Science. Okay, you need triple long johns to visit the spot that Ted Scambos described, but get ready to add a fourth or fifth layer of woolly warmth. It seems incongruous
0: that the planet named after the Roman god of war, after the Babylonian god of fire and war, and that to the eye looks burnt red, is actually very cold. The temperature on Mars can plunge to almost negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Are about negative 150 degrees Celsius, and that's far below the Antarctic
3: record. So the question arises: If the Red Planet is our numero uno destination for future spacefaring humans, how will our fragile earthly protoplasm, and for that matter, our equipment, survive? To find out, every summer, SETI
0: Institute planetary scientist Pascal Lee packs his California bags and heads north until he arrives at 75 degrees north, 87 degrees west. The closest analog to Mars this planet has is Devon Island. It's located in the Canadian archipelago, and it's the largest uninhabited island on Earth.
3: Pascal, most of my colleagues complain if their offices are cold, it seems they can't work under such circumstances. But you've deliberately chosen to do your work in one of the least comfy climes on the planet, the Arctic. What have they got there that sunny California doesn't have?
4: Well... I really don't know what sunny California has to offer because I've spent the past 17 summers of my life on Devon Island. And by all accounts, Devon Island is probably one of the most godforsaken places on the planet. Tell me where it is. It's in the Arctic, west of Greenland, north of Baffin Island. It's beyond the Arctic Circle. It's north of the northernmost part of Alaska, but it's in the eastern Arctic. And Devon is the largest uninhabited island on Earth. It has a massive impact crater called Houghton Crater, and the place is just desolate, barren. It's cold, windy, dry, rocky, unvegetated, but we love it. It's Mars on Earth.
3: Mars on Earth. You go up there because this is like, uh, like Mars?
4: Yes. Of course, there's no place on Earth that is like Mars. Mars has a different gravity. Mars is extremely dry. Mars has a very thin atmosphere. Uh, Devon Island, by that standard, is very pleasant. But from a terrestrial standpoint, it's one step in the right direction. And by going to Devon, we are able to see what geology does and what biology does in a cold and dry environment on Earth. And that has taught us some priceless lessons so far.
3: Well, we want to get into that, but, but give me a description. of if, if you plopped me down onto Devon Island there in
4: the Canadian Arctic, what would I see if I looked around? So it's even better than that because what we do on Devon is, for example, we test spacesuits. And if you were to come to Devon Island to join us, I would make a point in putting you, Seth, in a spacesuit. And I think it would really strike you at that point how Mars-like and otherworldly this place is. Because, of course, it's already barren, it's desolate. But when you don a spacesuit and the engineers are finished futzing around you, tweaking your ventilation system, and you're able to sort of turn away and walk off into this landscape, it's then just you and this rocky mineral world. And really, the first time I was able to do that, I thought I was really experiencing Mars as close as I could possibly be experiencing Mars. But that's the idea. You, you, you have something, however, that's still high enough in fidelity in terms of transposing you in a spacesuit on Mars to make the feedback that you're going to give the engineers relevant.
3: What about the fact that it's cold up there at Devon Island? I mean, a rocky terrain, you could find that, I suppose, in Arizona or some other place. You wouldn't have to go all the way up to northern Canada for that. What aspects of the kind of equipment you're trying to test out are, you know, critically dependent on the fact that it's cold? In fact, maybe you should tell me, how cold does it get on Mars?
4: On Mars... Uh, Temperatures on average minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 60 degrees C, although in the polar regions or even at night at low latitudes, it could get down to minus 125 degrees C or minus 225 Fahrenheit. So Mars is a frigid and very dry, for that matter, place. Devon Island is by no means as cold. And in fact, we don't go to Devon Island to subject equipment to cold because it's just not cold enough for it to be a valid test. On the other hand, in terms of the cold on Devon Island, what we're interested in are the mechanisms that microbial life adopts to survive. Because even though it's not as cold as Mars, the measures that microbial life start to take to adapt to an environment that's cold, very exposed to solar ultraviolet light, et cetera, are of relevance and interesting for Mars. One of the things you find on Devon Island is the fact that when you look at this barren landscape, it seems to be lifeless. But in fact, it's teeming with life. It's teeming with microbial life. There is a biomass in this rocky desert, except that it's out of sight. It's buried inside rocks or in the soil. And you can slice a rock open on Devon Island, and you will see a rind of cyanobacteria, of green, thriving in the shallow nooks and crannies of the rock. They're doing what caveman used to do. They are hiding inside a cave, in the shelter of a cave, but not so far in that they are cut off from sunlight, but deep enough that they are sheltered from the wind, the cold, the ultraviolet light, the exposure to the elements. So this is what the cyanobacteria do. And this is the kind of adaptation we're interested in because what might microbial life be doing on Mars if it were there? It would be probably hiding from the very hostile surface environment. I don't believe we will find extent microbial life on Mars at the surface today. But deeper in the ground or inside rocks or in caves, that's an entirely different story. And we could be looking at a large biomass there.
3: Pascal, uh, many people have this idea that Mars was once a kinder gentler world, wetter, warmer, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe they're picturing the the way the earth was during the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, any, any truth to that?
4: Yes, Seth. And I, I think this is a tendency that we all have as human beings to want to see something that's more familiar out there. Well, you know, I'd like to come back to this idea that this is such a cold place, and yet we find it to be teeming with life. To me, that is one of the important lessons we've learned from exploring extreme environments on our planet. Devon Island, in fact, has taught us that many aspects of the Martian landscape that are classically attributed to a warm climate, like the river valleys early in Mars' history, or the fact that the craters on Mars seem to be a bit weathered, all of these observations that are often attributed to early Mars being warm and wet are actually explained away on Devon Island by a cold climate. We see very similar features on Devon Island, and they have never involved a warm climate. So from my perspective, one of the insights that we've gained that really is exciting from our work on Devon is the fact that maybe Mars was always cold, climatically cold. The ground was warmer early in its history from impacts and volcanism. Yes, there was liquid water. But the climate on this planet was always frigid, and that solves a bunch of other problems about early Mars. But the important corollary to that is that in spite of early Mars being climatically cold, life might have been possible. And that to me is just uh, an incredible thing.
3: Pascal Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Seth.
0: Pascal Lee is a planetary scientist at the SETI Institute. He's the director of the NASA Houghton Mars Project and the co-founder of the Mars Society.
3: Earth cold is not like cosmos cold as we've learned. Cosmos cold looks at earth cold and says, "Is that the best you can do, jeez?" But whatever the chill factor, we've been discovering that although molecules slow down when the temperature plummets, scientific discovery sometimes heats up. There are lessons to be learned in these extreme thermal states. Recently, a ball of ice that's normally at -270 degrees Fahrenheit, that's -170 degrees Celsius, became a cosmic messenger.
0: Comet ISON made big news for a while as scientists tracked its entry into our solar system and its loop around the sun. ISON, named for a project to track objects in space, the International Scientific Optical Network, was discovered by Russian scientists who, in 2012, were actually looking for asteroids.
3: Comet ISON became Comet Off as it neared the sun. What do you say when a ball of ice like that disappears?
0: Are you asking me? Yeah. No comet.
3: I see. That's what you say. Okay, well, that's because, unfortunately, this ancient hunk of rock and ice went from minus 290 degrees Fahrenheit to a blistering 4,000 degrees, and it burned up entirely. But astronomers say that this denizen of deep space was ice while it lasted.
0: But still, at its heart, it was a chunk of ice and dirt, so why did it get so much attention? Well, for one, comets are spectacular objects visually. As they approach the sun and heat up, they become brighter and develop these iconic million-mile-long tails.
3: But even more than their photogenic appeal, comets are intriguing because they spent most of their lives in the bitter cold of outer space. They're refrigerated samples of our solar system from before it was a solar system, And astronomer Andrew Fracknoy says that despite turning into a mere wisp of its former self, we still learned a lot from Ison.
1: Well, this, in fact, Seth, was a virgin comet, if I can put it that way. This was a comet coming to us from the deep freeze of space for the first time. And comets like that are, perhaps like cats, very unpredictable. They do what they like. Um, And so... We did not know at the beginning exactly how this comet would wind up in terms of brightness and visibility, and there was some promise from the early observations that it would look good. Uh, Eventually, it turned out it wasn't quite even the comet of the year, not the comet of the decade or the century.
3: Okay, so this thing was found, what, in 2012, right? That's right,
1: September 2012.
3: So we've had a long run-up for this thing to get to the inner solar system into our neighborhood and to round the sun, which it has
1: done. What's happened to it? Well, this is what we call a sun grazer comet, Seth, and that means it comes uncomfortably close to the sun. Uh, The sun can, with its gravity, rip it apart. And the Sun can, with its heat, take the ice, which is the main body of a comet. Comets are made of dirty ice, ice with dirt and dust frozen within. It can take that main body of the comet and essentially evaporate it, just evaporate the ice from its heat. And it appears that both happen, that the comet may have broken apart, but that the evaporation then took the main ice body and did away with it. And all we have left is a trail of dust and gas, nothing really much substantial at all.
3: Well, the fact that the sun was able to do it in suggests that this was indeed this comet's first visit to this part of the cosmos,
1: right, to this part of the solar system. Where did it come from and what steered it our way? This actually turns out to be an interesting story from many perspectives. First of all, we now know that comets are Uh, part of what's left over from the formation of our solar system. Janitorial services were not up to snuff when the solar system first formed, and so there was a lot of garbage left over. The rocky garbage is called asteroids, and the icy garbage is called comets. And just like the icy planets are further out in our solar system, so the icy garbage, the icy debris from the early days, is further out. And uh, there's actually a an idea that there's a cloud of such icy pieces left over from our formation, uh, way, way beyond the orbit of even the dwarf planets in our solar system. Uh, some people call that the Oort cloud after Jan Oort, the Dutch astronomer who came up with the idea. And it appears that this comet, Comet Ison, was a visitor from the Oort cloud, making its first appearance on the uh, in the inner parts of the solar system. And as a result of that, it was both unpredictable, and it was, in a sense, in an orbit which had not been changed by Jupiter, not been changed by the outer planets. Uh, Comets like Halley's comet uh, have come around again and again because they were trapped by the gravity of one of the giant planets.
3: Okay, you say that this is a dirty
1: ice ball, but it's pretty old ice, right? That's right. One of the most exciting things about comets is that if you see a virgin comet like Ison, you are looking at untouched material left over from the period maybe four and a half to five billion years ago when our solar system was first forming. So much of the solar system near us has been reprocessed by things like the melting of solid planets at the beginning, by the sun acting on the materials in the inner solar system. But a comet like Ison represents the very primordial material from which the solar system formed. And its study can tell us about times billions of years ago when our system was just starting.
3: Well, that sounds like uh, researching the... uh, I don't know, the, the fauna of the past by digging up dinosaur bones, except in the case of Comet Ison, I mean, that, that ice is 30 or 40 times older than the dinosaurs, but we don't have any spacecraft going to sample it. How do, how do we learn anything about this comet and what it has to tell us?
1: Well, indeed, you're right, Seth, that this is a sort of cosmic archaeology. We're looking back at our uh, chemical roots by looking at the makeup of comets. And what's nice about the comet is that the comet's coma or our atmosphere, the cloud of evaporated material, then is set to glow by the light of the sun. And astronomers can take that light, put it through something called a spectroscope, and get a spectrum, take the light and spread it out. And within that spectrum of light, there are clues about the chemical makeup of the comet, what particular atoms and molecules have been released from the frozen comet and now glowing with the energy of the sun. So we can do more than just admire these comets. We can actually learn exactly what substances made them up and therefore what might have made up the mother cloud from which the solar system formed.
3: I think most people, when they think of comets, uh, they think of something with a long, spectacular tail. And comets do have tails, but they don't start off that way. I mean, uh, these tails are something that only, they can only wear for a short period of time, right?
1: That's right. A, a tail for a comet is a fashion accessory that can only be worn near the sun. Um, it is the sun's heat and the sun's energy that can evaporate the ice of the comet, and it's that evaporated material, the, the g- ice, which becomes gas, and the dirt, which becomes dust, which is then pushed back away from the Sun into what we call a comet's tail.
3: Some people worry whenever uh, a new object is discovered in the sky, an asteroid or a comet, that uh, we're in danger, that we might be hit.
1: What's, what's the story on ISON? Well, this, this was really humorous because ISON is not scheduled to come any closer to the Earth than 40 million miles. So I think there were just so many people unhappy about the fact that the doomsday 2012 scenario never came to pass, that they're desperately looking for something else to be afraid of out there. And when ISON was the, the first discovered, there were all these pseudoscience stories around the web that somehow ISON was going to be the threat from space that does us in. But Not only did the sun take care of that by essentially reducing the comet to a little trail of gas and dust, but in fact, even if the comet had survived its close encounter with the sun, it wouldn't have come anywhere near the Earth. Forty million miles. I think uh, Venus and Mars get closer than that,
3: and they don't seem to be on a trajectory to hit us. Well, finally, Andy... uh I don't think there are any comets named after you, but there is a piece of rocky real estate bearing your name up there. Tell me about that.
1: Well, this is is one of the great honors. When I retired from being the executive director of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific— uh, some of the board members and some colleagues at the Lowell Observatory worked together to take a very boring and very ordinary asteroid and, and name it after me. So there is indeed a, an asteroid Fraknoi out there, but I'm always eager to reassure everyone who hears about this that it is a very, very nondescript asteroid and a very well-behaved asteroid, which poses no threat to the Earth at all. <laughs> Andy Fracknoy, always a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Good to talk with you, Sam.
0: Andrew Fracknoy is chair of the astronomy department at Foothill College. How unusual is it for a comet not to burn up as it loops around the sun?
3: Well, most of them don't. But Comet Ison was a sun-grazing comet, which meant it got within a million miles of the sun. And, and when you're that close, that's 100 times closer than we are. When you get, when, get that close, your chances of burning up go up. Next, how low can we go? Scientists have achieved temperatures that drop below even what deep space can deliver. What can we learn in the quest to reach absolute zero? Some like it cold, really cold. On Big Picture Science. Okay, there's Antarctica, bitterly cold. And then there's Mars, very, very bitterly cold. And then the head of a comet like Ison, extremely intensely bitterly cold. Well, what's colder than that?
0: Intergalactic space, the only warmth there comes from the remnant heat of the Big Bang, and that warms intergalactic space to a toasty negative 453 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 270 degrees Celsius. And that's hundreds of degrees colder than comet Ison.
3: But could you find anything more frigid than space, eh? Well, yeah, but you have to book some laboratory time. Nearly
0: two centuries ago, a scientist named William Thompson suggested that there was a lower limit to temperature. After all, temperature is just a measure of the motion of atoms. So if you could stop a room full of atoms, for example, stop them cold, well, then they really would be cold. They'd be as cold as possible.
3: Professor Thompson called this absolute zero, and then people started calling him Lord Kelvin. Absolute zero is zero degrees on the Kelvin thermometer scale, which is one that he devised, Today, we know absolute zero to be minus 273.15 degrees Celsius or minus 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit. Only Lord Kelvin didn't know how to make anything even remotely that chilly. He only suggested the theoretical necessity of this, the lowest of all temperatures.
0: The scientists who followed raced each other to the bottom. By using a number of methods, including lasers, over the centuries, they've cooled gases down to mind-boggling temperatures, beginning with liquid nitrogen at 77 degrees above absolute zero, then liquid helium at 4 degrees above absolute zero, and now using lasers to help with the cooling, they've achieved temperatures of only 1% billionth of a degree above absolute zero, and some of this work has garnered Nobel Prizes.
3: And along the way to the ultimate chill, scientists noticed that matter begins to take on very bizarre properties, and that's because of those spooky quantum mechanical effects they start to take over. For example, matter becomes superconducting, you can pass a current through it, electricity, without any loss, without generating any heat. Vladen Vuletic is a professor
0: of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he's going for the ultimate cold. Big Picture Science caught up with him in Switzerland via Skype.
3: Vladen, you know, it's uh, pretty cold uh, here in the winters, but there's a limit to how cold it can actually get. This idea that there's an absolute zero to the temperature scale, that, that isn't a measurement result, right? That, that's just a theoretical idea. That
6: is a theoretical idea that, however, has been confirmed. So temperature means random motion of atoms or particles. And at the point where the particles stand completely still, that's absolute zero. That's at minus 273 degrees Celsius.
3: C- can you tell me what that is in Fahrenheit? Do you happen to know it?
6: Minus 400 something. I don't know the exact number.
3: So to get to that kind of temperature, I mean, obviously, we can put things in the refrigerator and they get to, you know, zero degrees centigrade, a few degrees below zero centigrade. We can put them in dry ice. They get a little colder. We can, I mean, how cold can we make things sort of in the lab? If I just went into my my physics lab at, uh, at my local university, how cold can we make things there?
6: Well, you could use uh, liquid helium, for instance. Then you would get to about four degrees above absolute zero the coldest temperatures interesting that you can get is um, using laser cooling so you shine lasers on atoms and you can arrange it so the lasers slow them down and you can go to a billionth of a degree even below a billionth of a degree above absolute zero
3: within a billionth of a degree of absolute zero. You, you say you do this by shining lasers at the atoms in a presumably in a little sample that you're trying to cool down. But how does shining a laser on atoms make them cooler? Because making them cooler means they should slow down, it sounds to me, like hitting them with laser light would just speed them up.
6: That might be correct. But imagine that the atom is like a basketball. And imagine that if that basketball is moving, you you start bombarding it with some lighter balls, let's say ping-pong balls. And if you shoot enough ping-pong balls on the basketball, the basketball will eventually stop down. In this example, the atom is the basketball, and the ping-pong balls are the particles of light, the photons. So you use light pressure to slow an atom down.
3: Okay, so you get them to this incredibly low temperature. You say within a billionth of a degree of absolute zero. Uh, What does it look like? Does it all turn into a solid?
6: In the case of atoms, interestingly, it remains a gas, so the particles move around. You can trap them, for instance, using magnetic fields. You can hold them in space, otherwise they would just fall under gravity. Other materials would go to a solid state, but the coldest temperatures that we have achieved anywhere in the world is in a gas. Um, This is the billionth of a degree above absolute zero. The atoms remain a gas. They are moving around, colliding with each other, but they don't form a solid.
3: So it's, it's a very, very cold gas. Does it have any properties that are different than it would have at, say, you know, 10 degrees above zero?
6: It's very, very different. The whole point of cooling down to absolute zero is to bring out the so-called quantum properties, the properties where atoms behave more like waves than like particles. When we use cold temperatures to study quantum physics, there's a variety of phenomena that we don't understand that could be very useful technologically. One of these is, for instance, superconductivity, the fact that electricity current can flow without any resistance, without any losses.
3: And you can observe that in this gas. But, I mean, we've had superconducting materials for decades, I think, and they work at much higher temperatures than this.
6: That's true. However, they don't work at room temperature, because if you could make a superconducting material that worked at room temperature, it would revolutionize how we transport current it would reduce losses. We haven't been able to do that. And the hope is that by studying materials at ultra cold temperatures, we can understand how superconductivity works. Because theoretically, we really don't understand it. And you know, for 20 years, people have tried. And so far, nobody has a convincing model. So the hope is that if we study at very low temperature in an analogous system, we can understand how it works and then maybe build room temperature superconductors one day.
3: You know, this sounds to me somewhat analogous to... Uh, the people who study what goes on inside a uh, black hole, and of course, generally speaking, they have to do that on blackboards, not with telescopes, because it's all kind of theoretical. But if you ask them, why, you know, who cares? Why, why do you do that? They say, well, this is the way we can learn something fundamental about how matter behaves. And it sounds like that's similar to the motivation you have for cooling things way, way down.
6: That's one of the motivations. There are several other motivations For instance, anybody knows GPS and the way GPS can only work is if you have very, very accurate clocks because the way you measure position is actually by sending an electromagnetic signal if you want, like a light signal, and measuring how long the light travels and from that you calculate where an object is. And so to make very accurate clocks, for instance, you need to cool particles down because you need to be able to measure them for a very long time. So that's one of the practical applications. Another hopefully practical application one day is that at low temperature these quantum effects uh, start to matter, and one day people hope to make quantum computers that could beat our current computers in solving difficult computational tasks.
3: So this is more than just uh, the usual basic research that uh, we're doing it because we just want to understand. There's actually a practical application in sight.
6: That's several practical applications in sight. So uh, as I mentioned, clocks measuring time, gyroscopes can be done with atoms that's measuring rotation. Accelerometers that measure, for instance, the acceleration of a ship or a plane. Um, you can even measure gravity with these atoms at very cold temperatures. So, for instance, you can find out whether there's, you know, whether there are tunnels under the earth, whether there's maybe reservoirs of natural gas, things like that.
3: So you have managed with this laser technology to get a gas down to within a billionth of a degree of absolute zero. How how much farther do you think it's likely we'll be able to go with this? I mean, how much colder could we make it?
6: So theoretically, you can never reach absolute zero, but in principle, you can go arbitrarily close. So It's really the question of how well can you isolate the atoms from the environment that is very, very hot, obviously, that is at room temperature. So I think there will be, you know, one can go further down in temperature, but we will never be able to really reach absolute zero.
3: I have read somewhere that in some of these experiments, people have uh, produced what they call negative temperatures, and that sounds... uh, kind of uh, incredible, because zero is when everything stops. You can't have everything, you know, do better than that. What, what is meant by negative temperatures?
6: So negative temperatures is an um, interesting concept. Negative temperatures are actually hotter than any positive temperature. So temperature usually means that there's random motion of atoms and there's, or particles. Particles have different different energies, and most of the atoms, for instance, in a gas, move slowly. Negative temperatures is a strange situation where most of the particles move very fast. So it's an extension of the concept of temperature. But negative temperatures have also high random motion, just like positive temperatures.
3: Well, uh, you really have a very cool job, and we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
6: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Vladin Vuletic is a professor of physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which knows something about chilly weather in the winter.
3: (laughs) Yes, they do.
0: Why is it that there is a limit to how cold you can go? Why can't you go to negative 274 degrees Celsius, for example?
3: Well, it's it's quite simple because temperature is just the motion of things, and if they come to a stop, well, that's it. I mean, it's like saying, why is there a lower limit to how fast you can go on the freeway? You know, you get down to zero, and that's as low as you can go.
0: That's the speed I like to travel on the highway, (laughs) I have to say.
3: You don't get to your destination very quickly, but, you know, it's safe.
0: Not a fan of speed. Well, we've talked about uh, natural lowest temperatures, And then we talked about artificial temperatures. As cold as it can go naturally is negative 135 degrees Fahrenheit. As cold as it can go artificially is negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit.
3: Yeah. Well, it can't go much colder on the Earth because on the Earth, you know, there's always a source of energy somewhere. I mean, it might be very cold where you are, but on the other side of the Earth, it might be a sunny day. So there's always this heat coming into the atmosphere, and the atmosphere, of course, does distribute it around a little bit, and, of course, so do the ocean. So there's a limit to how cold it can get on the Earth.
0: Can you say more about why it is that matter behaves in such weird ways when
3: it gets very, very cold? Yeah, it's a little tricky uh, because it does depend on quantum mechanics. But it turns out—and this is something you can discuss at your next party— all particles, yeah, they behave like particles, you know, little billiard balls or something. But they also behave like waves, very counterintuitive. And when you make them colder, the wavelengths get bigger. They're, they're, they're more wave-like. And when you take a whole bunch of atoms and you cool them way, way down, they sort of spread out. Their influence <laughs> spreads out. They're, they're everywhere at once. And uh, that leads to these strange properties.
0: Well, we've been talking about uh, the science of what we learn in cold conditions, such as the Arctic and uh, the Antarctic, and the science of cold itself. And we've been comparing some of the cold to space, and space is very, very cold. Why is it so cold?
3: Yeah, it's just the absence of heat. When you get into deep space, (laughs) you know. I I could have answered that. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you get into deep space, and you're very far from the nearest star, and that's the usual source of... uh, you know, energy, radiant energy in space. So when you're far away from the uh, radiator, you know, trillions of miles, it gets pretty cold.
0: Well, thank you to our hot production team. They're very cool. Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance.
3: And also support from Google, Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute and a big thanks also to our listeners Your ears have
0: been attuned to Some Like It Cold from Big Picture Science You can find more of this show on iTunes and through the link on our website and while you're online you might just find and even download our Big Picture Science app It's on iTunes Android and Windows 8
3: And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because podcasts simply leave you cold check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show.